Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Sam Brown, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Bill. Good, good. Glad to have you on. We've had you on before uh, when we we talked about uh, your book, um, remind me again the title because I, I should have looked that up before the interview. But it's one that I know we talked about Joseph Smith and Emma's tomb, and we talked about treasure digging and and, and magic circles, and it was quite an interview. But remind uh, the listeners of the title of the book. That one was my first as it is on Earth: Joseph Smith and the Early Mormon Conquest of Death. Cool, cool. Yeah, and I know that that's kind of where your field is in your career that that you're in in the in the health industry and dealing sometimes with death and and uh I, I know the book was just a, a masterpiece. I remember our interview and, and I know the listeners responded back, they loved it. Uh the reason we've got you on today, there's this new perspectives on Joseph Smith and translation. This is happening on the sixteenth March two thousand and seventeen. Uh I believe it's an all day thing, nine AM to like five thirty. And I was looking over the folks who are gonna be there, uh Richard Bushman uh, Jared Hickman, Terrell Givens, uh, Rosalind Welch, Jana Reese, Philip Barlow, and yourself, Sam Brown. Uh, give us an idea maybe kind of what they're going to talk about or what kind of things you guys are going to go into uh, in this conference. Jared, Terrell, and I in 2015 did a session for the Mormon History Association meeting, and Phil graciously chaired it. And the question was whether something fun and interesting could come from alternative lenses with which to view the nature of translation and early Mormonism. I put together the panel as part of the early work on my current book project in Mormon history, which is currently called Joseph Smith's Metaphysics of Translation. And we had a grand time, and Phil, at the end, was absolutely hilarious with almost like stand-up comic-level creative and unusual insights about what two lit professors and a medical humanist had come up with in that session. And at the end of it, Phil said, you know, we ought to continue this conversation up at Utah State under the auspices of the Arrington chair that he holds. So this conference is an attempt in a public mode that combines traditional scholarship with more open, working through interesting questions on video in front of a non-specialist audience. Some of what we're trying to get at, what what would it mean to wonder about translation in early Mormonism in terms other than either the discovery or rejection of discovery of ancient Nephite coins in the Yucatan or something like that? So as I understand it, we'll be having a grand time revisiting and expanding some of the topics that we considered in that Mormon History Association panel, which was great fun. Cool. And I know the session that you're in, tell us a little bit about what specifically you're going to dive into. I'll be revisiting the talk I gave at Mormon History Association meeting, which was 
asking the question, what does the Book of Mormon itself say about the nature of its translation? And I'll be looking at text internal evidence that I think suggests very different subjective experience of the translator. In other words, what did Joseph Smith actually experience at the time he was dictating the text of the Book of Mormon that are driven by the text internal evidences that are quite different from the model that's traditionally been taught and debated within Mormon history and Mormon culture that's most commonly associated with Skousen's recent work suggesting that Joseph Smith, in fact, was reading words in the darkness of the seer stones in the hat. Interesting, because translation, I mean, when we look at that topic, it's obviously big in Mormonism right now. I mean, most members are just in the last year or two are kind of coming to to an understanding of, of what a seer stone is and, and how it was used. Um, obviously, the idea of translation versus transmission, which is something we talk about, kind of some of these things you're pointing out, what's what's inherent within the Book of Mormon text. It's a, it's a fascinating topic that I think is on the surface of all of our minds as we're kind of studying Mormonism. I, I want to throw a couple of questions at you, and, and realizing that my audience is an audience that, that is made up of people who are really kind of struggling with church history. They're struggling with how do they reconcile things. And so I wanted to throw out this. I, I know that Richard Bushman, in my interview with him, he, he mentions that there's some 19th century stuff in the Book of Mormon that he feels like we as a culture haven't quite accounted for yet. And, and you kind of are hinting to the idea that translation in your mind as you look at the Book of Mormon text maybe is a little different than we as a culture opposed it. I know that Terrell Givens has talked about there being, a, he allows for some 19th century stuff within it. I know that Richard Bushman and Grant Hardy both make room in their own personal beliefs for someone to kind of hold a less historical or maybe even a non-historical Book of Mormon and, and still be kind of a, a faithful member. For members of the church who are kind of wrestling with that issue, any thoughts from you on what you see is that space of allowance for for some of Joseph's own culture and mindset to make its way into this text that that we hold to be an ancient story? Sure, those are good questions. My first comment would just be that I'm sympathetic to people who are feeling torn or cross-pressured, that on the one hand they feel a sense of identification with the contemporary world that's brought so many marvelous things to our doorstep. And I'm not talking about iPhones and other silly technological things. I'm talking about fundamental changes in the nature of society and equality that have been important moves forward. And I'm talking about deeper understandings of the nature of our experience in the world that I think are also worth embracing. So on, on the one hand, we feel this allegiance to this modern world that we inhabit that has certain inviolate, apparently, assumptions about the way the world works, the way we gather information, and the way we situate ourselves with relation to God. But we also sense that at the core of it, there's a kind of emptiness, a kind of void. And, and we feel, many of us, that religion, particularly a robust religion like Mormonism, has answers and content and meaning to fill that void, but then sometimes struggles to express itself and its insights in a way that can make sense within the modern assumptions about the way the world and the mind work. 
So I'm very sympathetic to people who feel cross-pressured. You're not alone. I think everyone feels a certain amount of cross-pressure. Now to the particular question of the nature of translation and Mormonism, I think there are two questions that got merged together that ought to be kept separate. And one question is, can you be a faithful Mormon and not hold a traditional historicist view of the Book of Mormon? And I think the answer to that is quite clearly, yes, you can be a faithful Mormon and not have a testimony of every particular claim. And in fact, I think you're seeing that even though the church leaders still feel strongly that the best way is to understand the Book of Mormon as an historical record, an ancient record, that that people are loved and welcomed and belong in the church, even if they're not able to persuade themselves that the Book of Mormon is an historical ancient book. So that that, I think, is a question of how do we live together when we have different understandings of some of our core doctrines. That will continue to take a lot of work to sort out, and as with every really ups and downs and sticking points and points of flexibility and compromise that I think are worth the struggle. Now, the second question is a much more academic and intellectual question, and I feel much better able to answer that in relatively straightforward terms. To my reading as an academic, now speaking not as a believer, but just as an academic, the Book of Mormon is quite clear, and this I argue in a paper that's forthcoming in an Oxford collection, I think it's called Americanist Approaches to the Book of Mormon. In that I argue that the Book of Mormon quite self-consciously advocates a vision of scripture that is hybrid, and the hybrid scripture specifically requires a written text and a living prophet, and scripture arises from the conjunction of a written text and a living prophet, much as the traditional Mormon model of the human being is a spirit and a body representing the soul of a person. In the case of Scripture, according to the Book of Mormon, a text and a living prophet or seer constitute Scripture. Now, if we take that model of hybrid Scripture seriously, then I think we're forced to expect that the Book of Mormon, particularly the Book of Mormon as it comes to be in the world, will be both a 19th century and an antique document. So as I read the Book of Mormon speaking solely academically, I think the Book of Mormon requires that it be both ancient and 19th century. So in this case, I think the academic reading of the Book of Mormon is quite compatible with a devotional reading or a believer's reading of the Book of Mormon that says that anachronisms belong in the Book of Mormon. And Jared Hickman, a good friend and very bright English professor at Johns Hopkins, will also be at the conference at Utah State. And his paper, using some literary critical techniques, but in a very straightforward and understandable way, grapples with that same question. And he argues, and I agree with him, that the Book of Mormon, according to its own self-understanding, expects anachronism. 
So the quick summary of that long answer is that the Book of Mormon wants to be anachronistic. And when you find 19th century material in the Book of Mormon, you haven't caught the Book of Mormon in a mistake. You've finally begun to grapple, if you're thoughtful, with the reality that the Book of Mormon rejects strict linear temporality and rejects the notion that any given encounter with God has to be locked in the temporal space in which it first occurred. Beautiful, beautiful. So my follow-up question there would be that, that Mormonism as an entity, as a, as a church, as an institution, doesn't doesn't really talk about that. There's not really any space out there to to help the membership see that that shift is even possible. And yet you have folks who are encountering the deeper issues of Mormonism, the complexities and paradoxes and, frankly, the messiness. And as that happens, they feel it's an all-or-nothing paradigm, that, that there's very little room to kind of blend in these these kind of middle-way nuances. Any thoughts like how we get to a place where these things aren't on the fringes of scholarship in a conference that 150 people will be at or 300 people will be at, but rather that this awareness is in Mormonism throughout so that so that as we begin to have to come face to face with the messiness of our history in the in the complexities and paradoxes that exist therein, that that the average member can make that shift without just feeling like it's an all or nothing and and, and they're gone. There are seven or eight extremely interesting and not well worked out assumptions or lines of investment all sort of shimmering in that broader question. With your permission, I would resist just a little bit the notion that the best path forward for the LDS Church as a whole or for the large majority of its membership is to embrace an academic, gently postmodern intellectual approach to their experience of their religion. I'm even though that's how I experience the gospel and the church, and that's a, a deep expression of my personality as it has grown over the course of my life, I'm not remotely persuaded that that walk of religious life should be normative for very many other people. And I think it's risky. It, it's actually a, a profound, to my eye, cognitive error that I see ubiquitously in medicine and, as well. I think it's very risky to reason from certain cases to the norm overall. You see it, for example, in the fear of salt. It was discovered that there's a certain amount of the population that, are, that have salt-sensitive hypertension, high blood pressure. It's a relatively modest group. For those people, too much salt in their diet does cause their blood pressure to be dangerously high. And then there are people who have advanced forms of heart failure or kidney failure in whom salt is a bad thing. But in general, for the large majority of people, salt is actually not a problem. It's okay to have flavorful food. But we had this period for decades where everything had to be salt-free, salt is an evil thing, salt destroys everyone. 
But the reality was that there are some people for whom salt in the diet is not healthy. And for most other people, salt in the diet is a welcome acknowledgement of the beauty of, of life in having flavorful food. And I think we have this tendency, if we find that something doesn't work for some, we want to make sure that that thing doesn't exist for anyone else. And I think the hard counterfactual that people have not grappled with, the what if under a different circumstance, would be if we did have a church that continuously over the pulpit was encouraging us to take a basically secular view, and I'm using secular in a more formal, precise term. I don't mean by secular non-religious. I mean by secular the way Charles Taylor intends it, a world in which religious faith and belief is seen as one option among many, in which the complexities of earthly life are seen as the highest priority for engagement and acknowledgement, in which a faith that is spontaneous or automatic or a part of the environment is seen as fundamentally untrustworthy. That's what I mean by secular. If, if, for example, under this counterfactual, we had a church community in which every week over the pulpit we heard Mormon-inspired or Mormon-relevant secularist rhetoric, would that ultimately lead to, even under its own terms, greater human flourishing among people who are in the pews or lead to greater retention of people who are present. My sense is that Mormonism in its natural expression as a not particularly modern faith full of angels and demons and miracles and deep loyalty and and essentially ethnic identification is really a beautiful thing and is a beautiful thing on average for the people for whom it's as natural as breathing and is a beautiful thing for people like me who've never been able to make that work. I, I mean, I was an atheist agnostic until I was 18 and although I am a devout theist since age 18, I am always intensely cross-pressured. And I find that having Mormonism speaking now about both the LDS church institutionally and about majority of my co-religionists, be non-modern allows a kind of balance in my life, even as, as someone who does not remotely fit the stereotype of the believing, practicing Mormon. I feel like I'm better off for the institutional church being non-modern and letting me be cross-pressured. So I, I want to resist just a little bit this story that I hear intensely repeated and, and repeated so much that it makes me wonder whether it needs the repetition to imagine that it is true, as, as so many other claims, that the LDS church needs to be more obviously modern or it's forever broken. Now, I'm not remotely proposing that I want us to start preaching the old Cleon Skousen books over the pulpit. I'm not remotely proposing that there's no room for us to grow as a church or as a community. But, but I actually personally 
reject the notion that we ought to be thinking of the LDS Church as an investigative journalism website or as a church that would be totally at home in contemporary secular discourse. And I, I also wonder whether even the facts are straight about the notion that the church is non-responsive. I will absolutely grant you that the experience that is reported to me of many people of the church educational system and the curricular materials in the last few decades of the 20th century and maybe the first half decade of the 21st were utterly empty of any hints of the stories that would become of concern in the last 10 or 15 years to a broader group of non-specialist LDS. That, I think, is true. But I watch what the church is doing, these marvelous, committed men and women who are trying to understand the nature of the cultural earthquakes of the last decade or so. And they're trying really hard. They're they're publishing books uh, in on the church's dime through the church's publisher that are wholly unexpurgated, keep forward. They're publishing an Ensign article on Seerstone. They're publishing large, carefully written tomes on the history of women in the LDS church. And by way of conflict of interest, my wife is the managing historian for the Women's History Group at the LDS Church, so I'm very sympathetic to the work they're doing. I see the Gospel Topics essay collections that are provided by the Church. I'm not persuaded that the story that the Church is not doing anything, or even that the Church is not doing enough, is factually accurate, and I'm also not persuaded that the notion that if the Church just comes clean and talks about itself, I'm using scare quotes here, if the church just comes clean and talks about itself in the way you would expect an unsympathetic journalist to characterize itself, that that will solve a lot of new problems. I, I personally, as a believer and as a parent of children coming up in the church, am eager for a church that stays true to its non-modern core, even as it continues in the direction it's going to find space and language to love and accommodate the needs of people who don't feel like they fit in very well. But I'll, the only last thing, I'm sorry I went on so long, but I feel reasonably strongly about this. There's an old phrase from Alexander Pope that the Mormons occasionally would quote, and let's see whether I remember it. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing drink deep from the Pierian Spring. I think a lot of the sense of crisis that leads good Latter-day Saints, and, and I'm not saying that there are good and bad Latter-day Saints, I'm just trying to emphasize that people that doubt are not bad. They're, these are good people. But I think part of what can lead people to have this crisis of faith or this disaffiliation or the sense that the church is having its own crisis of truth is the fact that in the contemporary age, what's changed is not that there's suddenly new information that's available about the church or embarrassing about the church. It's that that same old information that's been available for a very long time 
is now available with no work. No one's required to understand anything about the philosophical questions at play. No one's required to know anything about historical nuance. Instead, a casual Google search and websites that aspire to the imprimatur of science or wisdom uh, and can do it effortlessly with no academic credentials, no actual work involved, have people suddenly tied up in deep misapprehensions about the nature of life, the nature of religion, the nature of knowing that are, are half understandings. When I was an atheist, you had to work hard to sort out the interesting questions and the problems or the criticism, the complexities in Mormonism or in other religious faiths. And as a consequence, I had to be very well-read. And being well-read, you're able to incorporate a lot of this into your understanding of what comes next and how to process it. Anyway, Bill, sorry, I got sort of, I got sort of long-winded. Do with that what you want. No, no, it's beautiful. It's it's beautiful to hear that because as we're talking about, I mean, there are Latter Day Saints hurting, and it's and you're sensitive to that which I see, and you're sensitive to the church and it being able to maintain its influence and and its vibrancy, and 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 I think each of us have got to kind of wrestle with that and to understand just how important Mormonism is to our lives, and and not to just just throw in the towel because. A few things aren't adding. I, I totally get it, and I, I just appreciate the beauty of the answer. Um, this conference is the New Perspectives on Joseph Smith and Translation. It is on the 16th of March, 2017, from 9 a.m. to 5.30. Several sessions, all of these bright folks, including Sam, involved. And the, the website for folks is uh, www.faithmatters.org. Uh, Sam, just a last little thing. Any books or, or projects you're working on that uh, we should just be aware are coming uh, in the near future? Thanks, Bill. I have a book out for people that are interested in my day job where I actually spend most of my intellectual endeavors. I have a book recently out from Oxford called Through the Valley of Shadows, Living Wills, Intensive Care, and Making Medicine Human that tries to grapple with some of these really hard questions that we ask about what makes sense when our life is threatened and how do we talk about it? So for people that are interested in questions about hospice or living wills or advanced directives or more broadly, what does it mean to come face-to-face with the specter of mortality in the modern world? I'm hopeful that that book is of use. For the specifically Mormon work, I have a few essays coming out. I'd say the main things that I'm working on now are trying to wrap up the Metaphysics of Translation book, which I hope to have wrapped up in about the next year, and am working for the first time, I think, on a book of Mormon theology that will try to be more formally theological. The book I did for Living Faith Maxwell Institute was meant to be a conversation with my co-religionists about things I love in Mormonism, a much more pastoral devotional volume, whereas the theology book that I'm working on now is meant to be more formally grappling with theology. But I, I would say that my current projects in religion are driven by my hunger to understand the nature of the cross pressures that we experience living in this 
modern secular age, but also drawn to be in the presence of God or drawn to imagine that there is a God into whose presence we could come. So I'd say the main things I'm grappling with are these cross pressures of religious believers in a secular age. Awesome. Awesome. Again, grateful to have you on. Sam Brown will be at the conference New Perspectives on Joseph Smith and Translation, 16th of March of 2017, 9 a.m. to 5.30. Again, the website is Uh Sam, thanks again for being on and, and just appreciate all your work and appreciate your insight into some of these really tough questions that we're all wrestling with. Thanks, Bill. I think you and your listeners are great people and we're all in this together. Amen, my friend. Have a great day and uh, again, thanks for all you do. Thanks, Bill.